1: Um, welcome to Redemption Church. We are a Jesus-centered community who are seeking connection and redemption um, through grace, sharing, and exploration. We're really glad that you're here, especially on a Labor Day weekend um, where college football just kicked off. You could be in a lot of places right now. Uh, at the, the top of that list is probably your bed um, or by a pool somewhere, or on an island, or anywhere but here. We have laid hands on the AC, um, and it should be working. I said that last week, and it wasn't. Um, but we are, we're finishing up our time in the Old Testament, and part of the reason why we read uh, Matthew 1 this morning was to kind of tie a bow on what I hope many of us have spent doing over the last several weeks and months, which is just kind of trudging through these giant chunks of Old Testament reading where we haven't always understood, we haven't always had the answers for what we're reading, but as we're reading, we're just letting this kind of soak into our souls and into our imaginations And then I I find myself, and maybe I'm just a super Bible nerd and a weirdo, and that's okay if that's the case. But I find myself, as Patrick is reading, getting chills as some of these names pop up, and you know their story. Manasseh, the the terrible king. Josiah, the reformer. David, the conflicted king who is going to have a son who's going to be the king over all things. And there's this beautiful reality that Jesus is actually really tied to something. The Jesus is actually tangibly linked to not just the history of humanity, but to a specific people, to this Israelite people, to these Hebrews, that the Jesus genetically has a certain genetic code. That Jesus culturally is inheriting a certain culture, that Jesus theologically is being born into a certain set of theological beliefs, that Jesus is actually really historically rooted in the people of Israel and these Hebrew scriptures. I find that just really interesting and fascinating and troubling at times, but ultimately I find it life-giving. So I was talking with some friends this week who've been trying to sort through some of their faith from their childhood with their faith in adulthood and they're just i don't know unpacking a lot of that talking about relationships specifically like gender roles and like some of the weird stuff that we have maybe heard in the past about what women can and can't do based on their body parts which is just weird um and it, sorry side note: this is not what the sermon's on today but it's interesting how those gender roles only seem to negatively influence and impact women um Patriarchy is terrible, we should, and I think Jesus was pretty anti-patriarchal and liberating in those ways, but that's another sermon for another day. So they're confronting this befuddling cliche as they are like wrestling through, like what does it mean for us to actually follow Jesus? We, we've been taught this from our youth, and there's a lot of it that is like really good and beautiful and like life-giving. We wanna hang on to that, but there's also a lot of it that's really messy and gross and maybe a little harmful. And we don't know like, how do we like sort the good from the bad? We don't wanna throw it all out because we think there's something about Jesus, but we also know that there's some things in there that we shouldn't really keep. And so what do we do? And and so as they're wrestling with this, they, they keep getting advice on their relationship and on their lives. And as they are growing into adulthood um, and life together, they just keep hearing, well, it'll be fine. Just put God at the center. And now they know who they are because they're in this room, and they know the question that they asked. So just put God at the center. If you just keep putting God at the center, then everything will work out. Well, first of all, I want to suggest that maybe putting God at the center, as useful and helpful and good as I think that actually is, uh, if you were here last week, maybe you realize that that doesn't actually solve all of life's problems. But I think really more importantly, they they in some exasperation, my friend looked at me and was like, what does that even mean? I think it's a great question. Because like, like them, as they're wrestling with their faith and with, like, wait, some of the things I heard as a child and then how I'm experiencing life as an adult, like, there's some, some incongruence there, and I really want to keep the good, but what do I do with this? And I think the question itself is part of that. Like, we all get to enter into that experience with that question. Keep God at the center, which on the surface level seems like, oh, yeah, great, that's the answer to all of life's problems. And if you grew up like me, then you had some sort of theoretical list or your priorities, right? It was God and then family and then, I don't know, whatever your third was, football, country. um, I don't know. football for most of us, but and so what I want to do today is uh, I've got kind of a misshapen and malformed sermon, so buckle up. It's actually hopefully going to be shorter than usual, so that's good, Uh, but it may be a little more wandering than usual, but I want to just explore this idea of what what does it mean to have God at the center. Because the other thing that I think Matthew does for us in his introduction to Jesus and the life of Jesus and the good news of Jesus is he doesn't just tie Jesus into a historical people and a historical faith and a historical reality. He, he does something, he makes a claim about Jesus and it essentially is insisting put Jesus at the center. That his genealogy that goes from Abraham to David and then from David to Babylon and then from Babylon to to Jesus is this claim that Jesus is at the center. Not just of Israel's history, Not just of your history, but of the history of the cosmos. Jesus is at the center of it all. Jesus is at the center of humanity's story. Jesus is at the center of the cosmos' story. Jesus is not just at the center of redemption. Jesus is at the center of creation. Jesus is at the center of restoration. Jesus is at the center of all things. Like, we can go home now, right? I I think but I'm a pastor and I'm gonna keep talking because that's what we do. And so, what Matthew does with his genealogy, I'll spare you some of the boring details, but he, he, he frames the genealogy not with a historical mind. It's not that the genealogy isn't historical, it's just that that's not necessarily what Matthew cared about. In fact, if you compare Matthew's genealogy with Luke's genealogy, us modernists, we read it and we like freak out. We're like, oh my God, they're different. Uh, and we missed the whole point. I had a whole section in here about, let's explore that and talk about that. Um, I'm not gonna do that to y'all this morning. But it is really fascinating and interesting. There are a lot of things that we can learn from it. We will do that. If you wanna great coffee with me, let's do that. Maybe I'll make a TikTok video. Probably not, though. But Matthew is compiling his genealogy to do something, to say something. And so what does he do? He 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 fits it into three sections of 14 which is not a coincidence, right? So for the Hebrew imagination, seven was this really important number. It was the, the number, we, we tend to talk about it, seven is the number of completion or perfection, but we th- tend to think of perfection in like a laboratory way, this kind of sanitized version of perfection, that there, it, it lacks any sort of, uh, I don't know, blemish. But for, for Hebrews, what perfection was, it was wholeness, it was fullness, it was like bounty, it was like a... All-inclusive resort in Cancun. I don't know. Maybe I need to raise my bar a little. All-inclusive resort in Tahiti. <laughs> and so he, he doesn't just say seven generations. It's seven plus seven, so it's 14. So you get this idea of fullness here. So it's this fullness of this generation and this fullness of just this generation, this fullness of this generation. He does it three times, and three is also, that's right, you guessed it, an important number in the Hebrew imagination, which is about new life, resurrection and like fulfillment and so what what matthew is doing in framing jesus's genealogy this way is he is pointing to the telos of history the point of it all the center of all things not just of israel but of all humanity and the entire cosmos and at the end of that genealogy is jesus And so we have spent the last several months going through this story of God and humans in the Old Testament. And one of the things that we've seen is that it's a story that's consumed by sin. And I think sometimes we hear sin and we think of like naughty things or not following the rules. But hopefully one of the things that the Old Testament can do for us is is take us out of the mindset that sin is just simply some some bad decisions or some mistakes with morality and show us just how pervasive of an infection sin actually is. And that sin is not just something that we bring out from our own hearts into the world, but sin is actually something that is done to us. In fact, the first time that sin shows up, it shows up as something else that is out there seeking to to devour humanity in the story of Cain and Abel. It eventually does devour Abel and Cain in its own way, dehumanizing them, malforming them, one in death, the other in becoming a murderer. And so throughout the history of the Old Testament, sin is crouching at the door. Throughout the history that's presented in the Old Testament, humanity is failing to do anything about that reality. Throughout the history of Israel, what you see are a people who are invited to live into the ways and being of the God who dwells among them, who instead continue to choose living by the ways of the world. And the ways of the world are persistently and pervasively the ways of empire, conquest, oppression, Violence. And so anytime the kings of Israel get it right, they withdraw and they worship and they reform, which is very rare. Anytime the kings of Israel get it wrong, they try to look like all the other empires around them. And they grab their swords and they go out to conquer and they end up becoming messes. We talked about that last week, sort of. And it is to this reality, to this people, to this history that Matthew connects Jesus. into this world of violence and corruption and chaos, but also into this people of violence and corruption and chaos who can't seem to get it right. A world and a people who are divinely chosen by God, a world and a people who were birthed into a nation, a world and a people who were were given the presence of God and were called to be the image of God, bringing peace and blessing to the rest of the world, who instead of imaging God, image the rest of the world, become consumed by the world of violence, sin, and decay. And so at the end, we see Israel stealing, killing, and destroying. We see Israel looking like something, but it's not God. We see Israel worshiping something, but it's not God. And they were allured with the illusion of sex, money, and power, and they gave just a little bit of oblation at the altar, of the world that promised that you could have it all. And the result, the reward for their worship was corruption, death, and exile. And so last week we connected that to our present reality. What I want to do this week is talk about how God's beloved children who were ravaged by the reward of their worship are suffering under this languishing exile. Into that world, into that exile came a bright light because it was into that world that Jesus stepped in. And from Babylon to Jesus, Matthew tells us this beautiful story, out of exile. Now, the irony of the story is, is as Matthew is writing this, right, so he's recording this this depiction of this liberating king who shows up in Israel as the Messiah, who's going to free them from their oppressors. And yet, as he's writing that, they're under Roman power and influence. In fact, the Roman power and influence that they are oppressed by is going to do what to Jesus? It's gonna ultimately oppress and kill this so-called Messiah and King. And so in this, we see this backwards, this upside down, this cruciform way of God and God's king, this different way of being human in God's world that is not one of violence, it is not one of power, it is not one that cozies up with the, the who's who of power and influence, but is instead a way of weakness, a way of meekness, a way of crucifixion. And in this, Jesus, or sorry, Matthew points us to Jesus as God's king who shows us that the powers that are working to sow destruction through deceit and deception while promising life are only delivering decay and death. And yet Jesus, in a backwards and upside down way, shows us that his way is actually the way of life. And Jesus' arrival breaks through this darkness and ushers in what the later New Testament will call the new age, the new creation, the new humanity what Matthew calls the kingdom of God. That there is this old kingdom defined by violence and power and corruption and that Jesus is bringing in this new kingdom that's defined by life and power and weakness and in resurrection. And so the question is, what does it look like for us as a community of Jesus to center Jesus in our lives? I think communities of Jesus Our communities of resurrection power. Not because of their power, not because of their influence, not because of their wealth, but because of who stands at the center of them, the God of resurrection. And so part of our job is to fight for that reality of keeping Jesus at the center, which is really hard. It's not our default. We're not going to wake up in the morning and and even this morning on a sunday morning on the morning where jesus is going to be the center of our lives we're not going to wake up and go um default mode be like yeah i'm just ready to follow me some jesus today i'm going to take up my cross and follow jesus and love my neighbor really well and love god really well that is abnormal (laughs) and so one of the things that i would invite us into is this mode of life where we have to start seeing things the way that Jesus sees them which is an upside down way right so um so much of what I think we actually do is we invite Jesus into our kingdom building into our empire building even like in church right and we've seen this go really wrong in very public ways very recently where we think, well, if we can just sell out a little bit here, look what we gain, and by gaining that, then we have the kingdom of God. And Jesus assures us, nope, that's not the way. It's in weakness, it's in smallness. It's not in exerting power, but in giving up power. It's not in advantaging yourself, but in disadvantaging yourself for the sake of others. And so we fail to think that God's goals are actually gonna be brought about by God, and we start to think that they need to be brought about by us. right, so that's like church level. But personally, I think we do the same thing. Like, can I tell you some really, really, really good news this morning? You get to take a deep breath. and trust that Jesus has your future securely in hand. Right, and maybe you're thinking like, oh, that means my career is gonna work out. No, 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 that's not what I'm saying. Well, that means my cancer is gonna go away. No, 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 that's not what I'm saying. That means I'll never suffer. No, 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 that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that when your career falls apart, Jesus will be with you. When the cancer diagnosis doesn't go away, Jesus will be with you. When all hell breaks loose on earth, Jesus will be with you because Jesus entered hell for us and he enters hell with us here on earth because Jesus has also died, experienced the fullness of suffering for you and with you and rose again. And so Jesus securely holds you in his hand and your future in his hand because Jesus has promised you that one day you will get out of the dust of the earth. No career-destroying thing can take that away from you. No cancer diagnosis can take that away from you. No broken relationship can take that away from you. But conversely, that is something that you cannot give to yourself. That is something that you cannot will into existence. That is something that you are not going to five-year plan your way into. And on year five, I'm gonna get out of the grave. And this was a deeply held idea of the earliest followers of Jesus that allowed them to do some wild things with their lives. It allowed them to live in an open-handed and radical way that when we read about it, we're like, wow, that's really beautiful. But if we're honest, we're like, yeah, but it's also really scary. And I think this is a very different picture of church. Because now in a world of corruption, in a world of exile, in a world of decay, what Jesus is inviting us into is to be a people of peace instead of violence. People of faith and hope instead of a people of despair. A people of love instead of people of hatred and tribalism. Where we open-handedly embrace and welcome people who are different from us and who think differently from us and who have different ideals than us. And then, as this picture, we become a colony of resistance. We're actually, like, doing something when we gather and worship together. We're crying out against the darkness. We're crying out against the racism. We're crying out against the homophobia. We're crying out against all of the things that are destroying the world around us in our weekly, regular worship. We're a counter-community. And we bear witness in word and in deed that Jesus is the source of our full humanity, not our jobs, not our education, not our health, not anything else about us that we can or can't give to ourselves. Jesus is the source of our full humanity. Right? And if you're not quite ready to embrace that, like I get it. um, Most days, I don't know that I'm quite ready to embrace it, at least in practice. But when I do, I do, like, I find it true. I find it actually really satisfies my soul. And on those days where it, where it doesn't, I find myself grasping for it and clinging for it and, and longing for it, right? It's the psalmist, as the deer pants for water, so my soul longs for you, O Lord. Jesus, where are you? I need you. Okay. Um. So for my post-evangelical friends, for those of you who grew up in Southern Baptist churches or Bible churches or, I don't know, what is, what is another category for our evangelical? Those are the only two that exist in my world in my head. Um, so like if you were young and you grew up in like a youth group, at some point you were like on fire for Christ, and this is a phrase I used to work around a lot of evangelical adults who had teenagers, and like, I just want my kids to be on fire for Christ. Like, oh my gosh, Lucy, she's so amazing. She's so on fire for Christ. And there's this whole idea of like, we want our kids to be on fire for Christ. And, and in this is a, right, there's, that's great, and I would love for that to exist. Um, but the problem with fire is it eventually goes out. The problem with our passion is we're human beings and that passion can't exist forever. That's a good thing, it's not a broken thing or a bad thing. I'm not trying to say that. However, if if that is the end, we're missing something. And I think so many of us were taught, we have come to believe uh, that Jesus is somewhere else and that our job is to voluntarily opt in and live for Christ. Right, and so we're like trying to coerce our teenagers and all of their hormones. No, 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 you need to live for Christ. This is really good. You should live for Christ. And what we're really saying is don't drink and don't cuss and don't smoke and don't sleep with people. And that's living for Christ. I'm like, I don't know, I think we need to raise the bar a little bit. But what the New Testament says is that 17-year-old and all of their hormones are being held together. that you and all of your longings and all of your hopes and all of your dreams and all of your discouragement and all of your discontentment all of you is being held together by Christ you don't need to live for Christ Christ is the one who keeps you alive the New Testament says it this way You are alive by Christ and with Christ and in Christ. And you know who gives you that? Christ. It's Jesus. Not because you read your Bible, not because you prayed, not because you followed the Ten Commandments, but because he chooses to invite you into his life-giving presence. So what do we do with this? I feel like this is one of the most important pieces, um, and yet it feels so abstract for us to grab a hold of. I think grappling with this reality and remembering it can allow it to begin to transform your imagination of what life is and what life should be. I think grappling with this on a Monday morning or grappling with this in your next board meeting or grappling with this as you're studying for your exams I think that can be a helpful start. But then really practically, here's what I think we do with this. Using the words of my friend that I shared with, uh, I think it was last week, we lean in. Right, if Jesus is the center of our gathering, if Jesus is the center of our community, then we lean in. We come with open hands as poor and impoverished people who need Jesus. And we lean in and we say, I don't know. I don't have anything to bring you today, but I'm showing up again. Here I am. I don't know. I was a mess of a week, but here I am again. Another Sunday, I'm showing up. I'm here. We show up week in and week out, committed to reminding our hearts of this reality, that Jesus holds the cosmos together we're committed to regularly letting Sundays and our gathering and our singing and our hearing and our confessing and our scripture reading and our teaching and our praying, we let it reorient us. We let it remind our imaginations and our hearts and our souls and our heads that, oh, yeah, Jesus is at the center. And that's actually really life-giving. And we lean in and we keep showing up. Right, so I think there's some other things that we could do with this. Um, we could find ways to do good. Right, obviously, I think that's a good thing. Um, we can let ourselves know and be known. Again, I think that's a good thing. Like we exist for like our goal is those two things. We want to see some redemption in the world and we want to see connection. We want to see lives changed among us and we want to invite all of us into to acts of doing good. That's a good thing, and we we wanna invite everybody into community, into connection with God and with other people, and so we can know and be known. Like, that's a good thing. However, if we're doing those things, if we're doing good, and we're known, and we're being known, and we're not actually centered on Jesus, we're missing it. So I used to own a CrossFit gym. I know, I know, you can tell. I know you can tell. All the donuts I've eaten in the last several years are sitting right around here, But CrossFit gyms, you know what they do? They do community really, really well. You walk into a CrossFit gym and you can know and be known, and you can find some of the best friends in your life. It's it's like uh, boot camp. (laughs) It's like, oh, cool, we're suffering with no air conditioning and doing this terrible thing together. Wow, did we just become best friends? I think we did. You can find community without Jesus. But you know what else CrossFit gyms do? They do like I don't know. We're gonna Gather some school supplies and give it to the the school down the street. Or we're going to do a clothing drive for some folks who need clothes. We're going to do a toy drive. It's Christmas, and kids need toys. CrossFit gems do good. What's the difference between us and a CrossFit gem? Well, there's a lot. Hopefully, we have donuts. (laughs) I hope it's Jesus. And I hope it's the real, actual, resurrected Jesus not the Jesus of our imagination, not the Jesus that we agree with, but the Jesus that confronts us in our sin and loves us anyways and invites us into a different sort of life and way of being.
0: Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, get coffee with a pastor or visit us on a Sunday, then go to redemptionhou.com. Please know today that you are fully loved and fully accepted just the way you are. We hope to hear from you soon.